The gospel lesson for today from Luke chapter 2 will be the focus of our sermon. I'd like to reread just a couple verses for you. After three days, they, that is Mary and Joseph, found him, that is Jesus, in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? This is the word of the Lord. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, the Alpha, the Omega, Jesus Christ. My brothers and sisters, do you remember the 1990 Christmas classic, Home Alone? Poor little Kevin, right, is left, uh, what do you call it, home alone because his parents are taking a trip to Europe? How could that happen? How could two parents who pretend to love their children leave a child behind? Well, you see, in Kevin's circumstance, he's got a very big family. They had multiple vehicles going to the airport. Every driver thought that he was in the opposite vehicle. And before they know it, they're on a plane to Paris, and they realize we left Kevin at home. It's kind of part of the movie that we would sort of pass judgment on those parents. The movie doesn't necessarily paint them in a positive light, would you say? But we got to be careful when we read today's gospel lesson that we don't do the same thing to Mary and to Joseph. The fact that Mary and Joseph forgot Jesus in Jerusalem is not the main point of this lesson. Why were Mary and Joseph in Jerusalem in the first place? Well, because during the Jewish year, there are important high festivals, some of which require a trip to the temple, and the temple is in Jerusalem. So Mary and Joseph, to celebrate the Passover, one of the most important festivals in the Jewish year, they make the trip from Nazareth to Jerusalem, which is about 150 miles it's dangerous to make this trip alone, and it's just a long ways, but Mary and Joseph have company. There are a lot of Jewish families making the same trip along with them. It's easy enough to link up with someone else. Plus, it's always just more fun to carpool, isn't it? But they make this trip once a year to go and celebrate the Passover, which is a celebration that takes a couple of days and during this celebration, they're going to temple, they're going to church, we would say. They're making sacrifices, they're eating special meals, they're singing special hymns, they're reading portions of scripture day in and day out. Very important celebration. But then Jesus is used to doing this for 12 whole years. Every year they make this trip to Jerusalem. So we're kind of fast-forwarding in history. Just yesterday, we celebrated the birth of Christ. Now he's already 12 years old. He's got some stubble on his upper lip. His voice is deepening. This is Jesus entering adulthood. And I don't know about you, but this 12-year-old Jesus is different from any 12-year-old I have ever met. 
He's even very much different than I certainly was when I was 12 years old. I mean, we like each other. We like spending time here at church. We like worshiping God together. But what happens when church is over? We tend to leave, right? Hang out a little bit, chat for a couple minutes, and that's cool. It's good, good to have fellowship with one another. But say when we're watching a movie, when I'm watching a movie and that two-hour mark hits, I'm kind of looking at my watch like, hey, can we wrap things up here? I got stuff to do. Or if you're in a class and it's not particularly the most interesting class in the world, you're looking at that clock. And as soon as the class ends, as soon as the bell rings, you're not going to stick around. And I, back in my high school days, we always made fun of the kids that had questions after class. I realized that was mean, obviously. But going up to the teacher is saying more. What, you want to learn more? There's class again tomorrow. What are you doing? But Jesus goes to the temple for Passover, and he doesn't want to leave. He's been there already for a couple of days, but he sticks around. And it says that he was asking questions and giving answers. Now make no mistake, these are not childish questions like, on what day did God make the dinosaurs? Or could God make an object so big that not even he could move it? Jesus is doing theology. Because back in Jesus' day, the way that they did Bible class, the way that they did, that they did confirmation class was through questions and answers. A group would get together, someone would pose a question, a hard question, and everyone in that group would sift through their Bible knowledge and try to answer it, usually led by a rabbi or an elder. Jesus is sitting around with a group posing the hard questions, a 12-year-old, and giving amazing answers. And everyone has no choice but to be amazed at the understanding of this little child. Jesus is putting the PhDs of theology to shame. Jesus is putting me to shame. Jesus is putting all of us to shame. Not only in his depth of understanding, not only in how he gets scripture, but in his diligence, in his devotion, in his desire to be in God's house, to talk about God's word, to express his relationship with his heavenly father. I don't come close to the devotion Jesus had. Do you? What happens with me is I sit at home, I open the Bible, I know I should read it, read a couple verses, maybe a chapter, and then close it, and then do something else. I got that done for the day, check that box. Or I fold my hands before I go to bed and I say a prayer, I'm not really thinking about what I'm saying, I just feel like I should pray, it's just something we should do, check that box, and, go with, and then go to sleep. But to express a relationship, to have this deep desire to be in God's house and to do the things of God, that's not me all the time. How about you? What we are witnessing in our gospel lesson for today, brothers and sisters, is kind of like this. Imagine that you're a runner. If you're not, then pretend for a little bit. And you go for a run with one of your acquaintances. You don't really know them that well, but you, just by looking at them, you figure, yeah, I'll be able to keep pace with them. You start off on your run, and before you know it, they're 400 meters ahead of you. 
couple seconds later, they're 800 meters ahead of you. A couple seconds later, they're a mile ahead of you, then two miles, and you're thinking to yourself, who is this person? You get done with your run, you catch up to them, maybe a couple hours later, you say, what's your deal? And they reveal to you that they have the world record for the shortest marathon time. Good running buddy. Brothers and sisters, we cannot keep pace with the holiness of Christ. Jesus is devoted to God in a way that we just can't do. We cannot keep pace with Jesus' obedience to God's law, his obedience to everything God expects of us. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't expect it of us. When we look at Jesus' perfect obedience, it only highlights how disobedient we have been. But another mistake, brothers and sisters, to make would be to read this gospel lesson to conclude, all right, this is the kind of person we should be, go home and try to read your Bible more, come to church more. If that's all we said this morning, that would be a mistake. Because Jesus is like that marathon runner, and he finishes the race, and then when you get to the finish line, he takes his blue ribbon and places it around your neck, as if you had run it. Brothers and sisters, this gospel lesson is about Jesus being obedient. Yes, of course, if you ever wonder what a perfect person is supposed to do, looking at Jesus is the right thing to do. If you ever wonder what the right thing to do is, Jesus always did the right thing. So, of course, you will always have a good example in Jesus Christ, but he's not just your example. He was winning righteousness for you. He was being obedient to God's law, expressing relationship with God perfectly in your place to forgive you of all those times you short-shifted your relationship with God. All those times my eyes just moved over words on a page of scripture without thinking about what they mean. Every time we folded our hands and not really meant what we said when we prayed to God, they're forgiven because Jesus lived perfectly in your place. Jesus died innocently in your place. And Jesus rose victoriously, guaranteeing that it worked. God is not going to bring up old news. You should have been in church more. You should have read your Bible more. That's all forgiven. Those past shoulds are buried, buried in the love of Christ, buried in the obedience of Christ. And remember, you have the blue ribbon of Jesus around your neck. God looks at you and sees this perfection of Christ in your place. All your past shoulds, should haves, are forgiven. But you might have some future shoulds that aren't a bad idea. When you, right before you go to bed tonight, when you set your alarm for tomorrow morning, and you think to yourself, oh, I'm so excited to get a couple extra minutes of sleep, but then a voice inside of you says, uh, maybe I should wake up a little earlier so that I can spend time with God and his word. That's a good should. When you lie down and before you go to sleep, you, you think about everything that happened during your day. You think about all the ways God has blessed you, and you say, I really should say a prayer and ask for God's protection and say thanks to God. That's a good should. And when you, you're out with your friends and you're, you're getting a meal and they're about to serve the food and you fold your hands and you say a quick prayer of thanks to God 
that's a good should as well. Because this is how people of God act. We can't blame Mary and Joseph too much for, for forgetting Jesus. I mean, all of us who are parents here know that we've kind of slipped up here and there. It just so happens that one of Mary and Joseph's slip-ups slip is recorded for all time and all eternity in Scripture. You can't say the same about ourselves. But remember, that's not the point of the text. The real climax, the real important part of the text is what Jesus says to his mother. You remember that? She comes up to him and she says, Jesus, we've been worried sick about you. We've been looking everywhere for you. And he says to her, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Reminding Mary, reminding you and me who exactly this kid is. This is the son of God. And remembering that he is the son of God is part and parcel to remembering why he was there, why he was born, why he was living among us, why he chose to do all this. This is our Savior. Didn't you know that our Savior would be doing the work of accomplishing our salvation? Isn't it obvious? So now imagine someone is looking for you, maybe right now. And they come to church and they, they say to you as you're leaving church, I was looking all over for you. I had a really important question or I had something I needed you to do. Where were you? I was worried sick about you. What if you said, didn't you know I had to be in my heavenly father's house? You fold your hands and you thank God for the meal that is served, uh, served in front of you. And your friends maybe say, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? And you say, didn't you know that I would thank God? for the blessings he has given me? When Jesus hung that blue ribbon of his perfection and his righteousness around your neck, he gave you a brand new identity. Now you are a winner. Now you are one in God's family. Doesn't it just make sense that we who are in God's family will express that relationship in what we do? Somebody comes over to your house and sees a Bible on your shelf and says, what is that for? You can say, isn't it obvious? Because I read it. Because it tells me about God's love for me. Brothers and sisters, we don't go to church. We don't read our Bibles. We don't fold our hands in prayer to check boxes off as if we're the ones earning our righteousness with God. Jesus already did that for you. But doesn't it just make sense? That now that you are fully loved, fully forgiven, and fully clothed in the perfection of Christ, that this will just come naturally to you and me as holy, blood-bought children of God? Doesn't it make sense that we will seek Jesus where he will be found? In the word, in the sacraments, and at church. Kind of just makes sense. Amen. Would you please?